Okay, if you would, please turn to the Gospel of Luke. I'll be reading Luke chapter 4, verses 38 to 44. And he arose and left the synagogue and entered Simon's house. Now, Simon's mother-in-law was ill with a fever, and they appealed to him on her behalf. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever, and it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. Now when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and he laid his hands on every one of them and healed them. And demons also came out of many, crying, You are the Son of God! And he rebuked them and would not allow them to speak because they knew that He was the Christ. And when it was day, He departed and went into a desolate place and the people sought Him and they came to Him and would have kept Him from leaving them. But He said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues of Judea. Lord Jesus, you reign right now, today, savingly in our midst. And we ask that the power and the authority of your kingdom convert from darkness to light that it heal, that it sanctify through the sword, the loving, cutting, surgical sword of Your Holy Word. So therefore, to that end, help me unpack the Gospel of the Kingdom. In Jesus' name, Amen. Let's start this morning at the end of our text where Jesus makes this sweeping statement in verse 43. I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well. For I was sent for this purpose. This statement is an overview of Jesus' ministry. When He opened the scroll in the synagogue of Nazareth to Isaiah 61 and said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon Me to preach this great news. He is preaching the kingdom of God. Now, right here in verse 43 is the very first use of that term, kingdom of God, in the whole narrative of Luke. But it's only the first. And and there are not five or ten or fifteen or twenty uses of the term, the kingdom of God, in the rest of Luke. There are thirty-eight times this comes up. The whole idea of the kingdom of God is the foundational 
undergirding substructure that holds up this book. What's happening in redemptive history. In other words, it's that big concept that ties what God is doing from, Revelation, from Genesis to Revelation in, in creating, in redeeming, in saving this theme, the King, bringing a kingdom is what ties this together. There are a few other things like covenant, etc. But as we approach Jesus' statement, I've got to preach what I've been doing. This kingdom of God, it's huge. And so we're going to spend the next 25, 30 minutes before we come back to our text looking at the bigger picture. Okay, what, what is this kingdom of God? Well, when Jesus comes on the scene, there's a Bible there. Everything we call the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures. And it's already been completed for over 400 years. Now, in the Old Testament, in the Scripture, it foretold of the day that God would come and rule as King. He would rule over heaven and earth. He would establish righteousness and peace and set up a throne on the earth and rule forever. Now, here's just a taste of what, just picture these people in Capernaum where he's at now, or Nazareth, or all the Jews of the first century, whether in Palestine or, 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 or dispersed abroad. This is a taste of the text that they know and they're meditating upon. And theologies, meaning, ideas about what these kinds of texts would mean and they're waiting for. So, here's a taste. Zechariah chapter 14 verse 9 says, And the Lord will become King over all the earth. On that day, the Lord will be one, and His name, one. Meaning, there's going to come a time, there's not going to be any competitors to the kingdom anymore. Or Isaiah chapter 24, verse 23 says, Then the moon will be confounded and the sun ashamed, for the Lord of hosts will Reign on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, and His glory will be manifested before His elders. That kingdom will be set up, in other words. It will no longer be hidden. It will be established. It's an ideal earthly kingdom, as Isaiah 11.6 says. The wolf will dwell with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the young goat. It's a kingdom where there will be a new heaven and a new earth. Isaiah 65 verse 17 tells us, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and former things will not be remembered. The psalmist in Psalm 89 writes, once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to King David. His offspring shall endure 
forever. His throne as long as the sun before me. One more. During the exile, the prophet Daniel says, he saw a vision. And behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve Him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away. And His kingdom, one that shall not be destroyed. Okay, just a taste. See, what, what's been going on? There, this, God knows what He's doing with this book and how He... Un- folds and reveals Himself and His purposes and His works from the beginning to the end. Just briefly. He's King. He's God. He creates. Mankind sins. Falls. God all along has a purpose to reign. Not merely in judgment, but savingly. And we see these different things unfold in Genesis until we come to, here's his work. He's going to take one man, Abraham, and create a people. Isaac and Jacob and the twelve sons of Jacob, whose names changed to Israel. And he has promised Abraham, I'm going to give you this land. And I'm going to bless you. And I'm going to bless all the nations through you. And Abraham dies and you don't see it. And then a hundred years go by and... 200, 300, 400 years. His seed, His children, His family is now enslaved in Egypt. And God the King comes to deliver them and to rule over them. And He saves them with His outstretched arm. And the people just wait a couple days before they grumble in unbelief and sin and worship again a false God. And God judges them and says, therefore you're going to dwell for 40 years wandering around here until all of you who have worshipped other gods and have not believed me are dead before I ever fulfill the promise to bring you into the land that I promised your father Abraham. And that happens. And then comes the time He brings Abraham's children into the promised land crossing the Jordan and then rejudges. Not too long, they start worshiping the false gods of the people around them. And God's judgment comes, and they cry out, and God gives them a deliverer. Okay, we worship Yahweh again, the true God. And then just a little bit of time, and they worship false gods again. His judgment comes, and another deliverer, and another deliverer through the judges. And then finally comes Samuel, the prophet. Wow, he raises up this godly prophet. But even his children are just whacked out, rebellious against the Lord. And then people cry, we want a king like everyone else. And God gives him a king. And it wasn't good. But he gives him a second king, David. And through David, God makes a promise. From him, I'm sending 
a king. One who's going to sit on the throne of Israel and over all the earth. In these texts we just read, it's going to happen one day. Well, the rest of the history of Israel, you got this son of David thing flowing, promises about this future kingdom, but Israel itself, rebellion and rebellion and rebellion. So that David's son Solomon, for his sin, God promises, I'm going to split the kingdom. Instead of one kingdom of Israel, he splits it into the northern and the southern. And then first the northern No king was righteous until God's judgment finally comes. That's it. I've had it. And he basically has them obliterated. And then only the southern kingdom of Judah, that is, those who are in the line of David, exist. But they're going the same way. They're worshiping false gods and idols. And God keeps warning them through the prophets especially Jeremiah. And the same thing that happened to the northern kingdom is going to happen to you. I'm going to tend other armies in to wipe you out. And he finally does. And so in 586, Judah is taken off into exile. Where's the promise of the king? Daniel pops up when we hear what we just read from Daniel 7. Fifty years after exile, they start to matriculate him back rebuild the temple that was totally destroyed, the glorious temple of Solomon. they got this little dinky thing now. And that's not the fulfillment of it. And then you get these post-exile prophets. Again, this theme of kingdom. It certainly has not been being fulfilled during or after the exile up until the close of the Old Testament canon in about 430. It's not there. But they have the book. 400 years go by and they're waiting Especially now, because now they're, they're not an independent kingdom. They're being ruled by Assyrians and by the Greeks and, and then eventually by the Romans. And they're looking for their king and the kingdom to come and the deliverer. And they have Old Testament text and they have their theologies on how it might be. And then, as we have already seen, one day, a crazy guy shows up in the desert preaching. Looks like a prophet, camel's hair, a baptism of repentance. And he's saying, Repent because the kingdom of God is at hand. And he's only the forerunner. Then Jesus of Nazareth shows up after his baptism preaching. Repent, because the kingdom of God is at hand. It's right here. Now. Okay, you're a first century Jew. Okay. New heavens, new earth, wipe out cancers and diseases and sicknesses and demon spirits, the evil spiritual world and Satan. You're going to come and wipe that out like the prophecies say? That, is that what you're saying? The kingdom's here? What are you talking about? Yeah. If you felt that right there, you should have felt that. If you've ever read Matthew, Mark, and Luke especially, you should, you should feel this tension. Jesus is preaching. They got the same book. And for the most part, they're bewildered when you read the narrative. 
So why? This is what I want to do. Let's step back a little bit more. Jesus is going to live. We're going to see it in Luke. He's going to get to the cross. He's going to die. He's going to rise from the dead. We're going to get a bigger, clearer picture in the Bible of what is he talking about? Preaching the kingdom of God. This is what we get. The kingdom of God that Jesus is preaching, he's preaching it has come. It's being fulfilled in me, Jesus, in my coming. Came in such a way that was totally different than what the first century Jews expected. The prophecies of the king and the kingdom coming, it came and they were being fulfilled. And that fulfillment of the kingdom also came without its consummation of those promises. What I mean is the kingdom of God coming with Jesus, it is here with His presence. It's here today. Yet, in another sense, and this is what's going on through the narrative of Luke, in another sense, the kingdom of God is not yet here, but is still future. So it's present, and it's also, in a different sense, still future. Kingdom of God, coming from the, the idea of reigning and ruling in the Old Testament, and this term in the New Testament, the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom, the kingdom of God, does not necessarily mean physical boundaries. Like, we know your kingdom. Draw it on the map. It goes up to the Jordan and to the, the Mediterranean Sea here, and then on the north, here's the line. But instead, it also carries this idea of the authority or the right to rule. And Jesus comes on the scene. He is the promised Son of David. He possesses in His very person, in that true humanity, the right to rule. With Jesus' coming in His ministry, what was happening is that a new age that was promised was here. It was dawning. He brought an unseen, non-physical, spiritual realm called the kingdom of God. Particularly that rule, that kingdom, that unseen spiritual realm was a realm in which He would rule over some savingly. Matthew 21.31 says this way. Here's Jesus. Truly I say to you, right now, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom. Somehow it's there and they're going into the kingdom. The idea that God's kingdom would come and it would do away with satanic forces, evil spirits, and all enemies of God. That idea is pretty clear in the Old Testament. Okay, And, don't, don't confuse first century Jews with Old Testament one-to-one -one correspondence, but... That idea in their understanding of the kingdom was pretty much what they understood to come to wipe out the satanic realm 
demon spirits, all their physical enemies in thrones and dominions against them like Rome. See, their charts, their understanding, what I mean is this, some of you may or may not have an understanding about what you understand to be the end times. Okay, and you've seen our Christian charts, differing opinions on what's going to happen. They had their ideas at this time about the end times, the coming of the kingdom. And it's essentially something like this. They're living in the present evil age. If you just draw a timeline, right? They're living in it. And they're looking forward to these promises being fulfilled when the kingdom of God Himself would come to earth from above, down to earth. And this present evil age, when the kingdom comes, would end. And it would kind of go up into this heavenly, new heavens, new earth, no sin, no demons or evil spirits or sickness and disease, etc. Would That's banished. Now we're in the age to come. Okay? Got that idea? Okay. So, so they're expecting that. they got these kind of grids in their head. Jesus comes on the scene. We saw last week, right? This is different. This guy teaches with authority. And then a demon spirit screams out. And he, with his word, just says, shut up. Come out of him. So you see, something's going on here. There is a conflict with this guy and the demonic evil spirit world. Or or listen to what Luke gives us just, just a few chapters later in chapter 10, verses 17 and 19. It says, And the 72, now here's 72 disciples that Jesus sends out. The 72 returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in Your name. And Jesus said to them, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Behold, I have given you authority to tread on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy and nothing shall hurt you. So so this clash of the kingdom of God with the kingdom of Satan is expected by the first century Jews. And it's happening in Jesus' ministry. Yet... After Jesus even says this, I saw Satan fall, and he's casting out demons, throughout his ministry, demonic activity is still alive. Satan is still doing his work. 2,000 years later, demonic activity is still alive. Satan is not yet thrown into the lake of fire. This they had no grid for. This didn't make any sense to their expectations. So if you remember what I drew in the air here, this evil age, kingdom comes, kind of boost up here, what really happened in Jesus' coming? Yes, this present evil age. You do hear that throughout the Gospels, don't you? They use this term, present evil age, the age to come. In this present evil age, the kingdom came with Jesus' coming. But it didn't end this present evil age and boosted up. It's as if that boosted up heavenly realm, in a sense, 
invaded this ongoing present evil age until the second coming of Christ when the consummation of the kingdom came. Something is significantly different with the coming of Christ in His authority and rule that will be consummated at His second coming. Therefore, in other words, what we see in the New Testament is that instead of waiting for many Old Testament promises that we see about everything being changed, the physical universe, etc., bodily, no more evil, we see those promises coming in the person of Jesus, being fulfilled without the totality of the consummation of what still is to come. So Jesus comes proclaiming the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is in my person and it's working, it's here, its authority is here, and you can even see effects of the kingdom of God in my Jesus' ministry. To say it this way, the future, which is still, much of it's still future to us, came back into time in the present evil world and invaded it in the person of Christ. And He brought that kingdom and it's still here. But, still not yet. And so the kingdom of God in the New Testament, this term, it has a twofold manifestation. One, at the end of this age, which is still yet to come, at the end of the age, it's coming. And every enemy will be wiped out. There will be no more sin in the consummated kingdom. There will be no more possibility of cancers. And diseases and sickness and death or Satan or demons. That's a promise and that's coming. That's one manifestation of the kingdom of God that we still await. In the New Testament, the second manifestation of the kingdom is that before that has ever happened, Jesus has come with the kingdom and He has bound Satan to an extent. And has an authority over all evil that he's manifesting now to an extent. In other words, the future promise of the kingdom of God to rule forever and ever and ever has come in the person of Jesus secretly in a spiritual dimension. Okay? That's why when you pick up your own New Testament and you're reading in Matthew or Mark or in our Gospel we're going through, Luke, you come across this strangeness that it, right here Jesus talks about the kingdom as if it's far off. It's still way in the future. And then you just kind of go a couple lines later and He's talking about the kingdom as if it's right there presently in their midst. This is the tension that goes on. Let me just give a taste. The kingdom is future. In Luke chapter 19, verse 11, we read, 
As they heard these things, Jesus proceeded to tell a parable. Why? Because He was near Jerusalem and because they kept supposing that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. And they're wrong. It's future. Matthew chapter 23, verse 34, we read, Jesus says, Then the king will say to those on his right, This is future. Come, you who are blessed by my Father, now inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. In Luke chapter 13, verse 28, Jesus says, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself cast out. You know, Luke goes on after Luke called Luke 2 or the book of Acts. And the first thing we see after Jesus' resurrection, the disciples say, is it now? Is it now? Is it, you going to bring the kingdom to Israel now? His answer is no. I'm not going to tell you when that is, but that's coming. That's still future. Okay. Jesus shows up in Nazareth. He reads a prophecy that has to do with the coming of the Messiah, the King, promised of the loins of David. And He says, today, this Scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Huh? Is it future or is it fulfilled now. Matthew chapter 12 verse 28 we read and it says but if it is by the Spirit of God that I Jesus cast out demons then the kingdom of God has come upon you. In Luke 16 verse 16 he says the law and the prophets they were until John. Since John the Baptist The good news of the kingdom of God is preached and people right now are forcing their way into it. It's present. Luke 10.9 Heal the sick in it and say to them, disciples, the kingdom of God has come near to you. In Luke 17, verse 20 to 21, being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God would come, he answered them, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Oh, stop. Yes, it is. But no, it's not in the way that he means it here. The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there, for behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. So in other words, it's just a taste. of You get this tension going throughout the synoptic Gospels. But here's the sum of it. The kingdom of God is the power. It is the rule. The reign of God. Specifically in Jesus from Nazareth. The kingdom of God is now here. It's a spiritual realm that a person may enter in another, stay outside of. But the kingdom of God is also not now. It's not yet. 
in another sense, in the sense of the consummation. In other words, those of us who are in the kingdom at the moment, if you're in Christ, you're in His rule and His reign in a saving way. But it's not yet, because we still await the resurrection of the body. We still await the separation of the sheep and the goats, the regenerate from the unregenerate. We still await the reorganization of all physical creation, the heavens and the earth. We still await the not just curbing or temporary healing, but the obliteration of pain, of sickness, of tears, of sin, of Satan, of the demonic realm. We still await unhindered joy in God. The future state, the future, in other words, aspect of the kingdom of God in the ministry of Christ, has broken into time and space in a powerful, authoritative way. It is, in a sense, a taste of what is to come. The future. Breaking off and floating into the first century A.D. until His second coming. What I mean by a taste? There is no cancer there. There's no leprosy there. There's no paralysis there. Yet the kingdom comes and it heals that stuff with Christ. Temporarily. They get sick again and they die. You don't believe me? Ask Lazarus someday. It's a taste of the future. Here's the power, the core of the kingdom. It comes to sinful, broken, hurting, mortal, death-doomed humans. And it really does raise them from the dead. Spiritually. Not, Not physically. Not yet. It raises us from the dead. To taste and see that the King to us is good. And it does it in such a way without obliterating our sin. And we still live as sinners who have been by the King and the authority of the Kingdom awakened. Who have entered the Kingdom and rule and reign of Christ. And we have this tension what I'm, that's a taste of the future because the future is this. That awakening will then be experienced in the resurrection and the awakening of the soul that's already happened before you died in a way you can't imagine. Sin will be gone. Temptation will be gone. But that day... What is happening in God's purposes of redemptive history has broken off from the future and come into the past or time and space. And we have this overlap happening 
in the earth. This is why the confusion for the most part of his fellow Jews. Here's the basic response to even his disciples. What is he talking about constantly? And because they're confused, texts say stuff like this. And so Jesus started to teach about the kingdom of God with parables. And and some of them, by the kingdom power, getting little glimpses of it. Okay, I know something. You are something here. I know that. And I kind of like what you are. And others, yeah. Why do you teach to to, to the masses in parables, Jesus, so that they don't understand what I'm saying? Did that kind of stuff ever bother you reading the Gospels? No. Here's the thing. He's come in a way that no one expected. No one had a theological system that the real Jesus fit. They should have. It wasn't blatant in the Old Testament, but it was there. He came. The king came. We're seeing in our narrative of Luke, the king is here with the power of the kingdom and he has come the first time riding on a donkey into Jerusalem in order to lay down his life. He's coming in the future a second time in the clouds of heaven riding on a great white horse with a sword in his hand to destroy all his enemies. And so as Jesus opens up his ministry and he reads from Isaiah chapter 61, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me to preach good news. He is saying those promises, the time is fulfilled, it's happening now with me the promised one, the King. I am Him. It's called the Gospel of the Kingdom because it is good news for everybody who will repent and trust in the King. The Gospel of the Kingdom, the rule, the reign of God, is good news. Because in Jesus, God's kingly authority and power has manifested itself in true humanity to reign over humanity that is being saved forever. And He's come. That's why like in our text last week, in the synagogue, This is what people know. Something's happening in verse 36 where they say, and they were all amazed. And they said to one another, what is this word with this Jesus guy? For with authority and power He commands the unclean spirits and they obey Him. He has come. And He is ruling in a new way. A way in which that rule for those who are under the rule 
of the kingdom are being saved by Him. Is this helpful? Let me, let me ask one more question. What is it, therefore, that when Jesus dies and He's resurrected and He ascends to heaven, what is it that the early church preached? Well, Acts chapter 8, verse 12 puts it this way. But when they in Samaria, Philip is preaching, but when they believed Philip... As he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Or Acts 19 verse 8, it sums up the Apostle Paul's preaching this way. It's how Luke says it. And Paul entered the synagogue and for three months he spoke boldly, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. Acts 20, verse 25. When Paul sums up his own ministry uh, to the Ephesian church, he says it this way. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I have gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. And then, at the end of Acts, Luke sums up Paul's preaching this way. He lived there in Rome two whole years at his own expense, and he welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. So, this present, yes, but not yet, still future tension, is the mystery of the kingdom that is going on in Jesus' ministry. So, Let's go back to our text. Spend a few moments. Luke chapter 4, verses 38 to 44. Remember, this is a Saturday. It's a Sabbath day. Last time we saw what happened in the church service. Service is over. We leave the synagogue. Jesus goes to have dinner at Peter's house who lived in Capernaum. And they say, Jesus... Could we? I mean, we just saw what happened. Peter's mother-in-law, she's got a bad fever. She's really sick. Could you do something? In Jesus, it says in verse 39, and get this, right now what we're seeing is kingdom authority breaking into this present evil age. And he stood over her and rebuked the fever. And it left her. And immediately she rose and began to serve them. If you've ever wondered what mother-in-laws are for, you now know. You should have laughed more than that. <laughs> 
Okay, don't miss what happened here. She had a high fever. We've all had fevers. We've all been sick with fever. You know those bad ones when the air hurts your skin? She's sick. Jesus, the King, with kingdom authority, stands over her and says, Fever, get out of here. She didn't just recuperate like we do for a couple days and you're weak. She got up immediately and served them. That's why Luke tells us, this is not normal. It's not merely the fever broke. Kingdom authority came in and totally transformed her. Then we read in verse 40, And when the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to Him. And He laid His hands on every one of them and healed them. So, the Word got out about what happened earlier that day in the synagogue. Sunsets, dinner's over, and the town is flocking outside of Peter's house, grabbing their sick loved one, the ones with differing diseases, and hoping this Jesus, he, what we saw, may be able to do something. So, here they are. They are. I don't know how many. 100, 200? The families are with them. Sick with consumption and coughing up blood. This one's got this horrendous, disgusting skin disease. This one's just really bad sick. They don't know what's causing it like we do today. He's got a 104 degree fever and they had just had a carry because, you know, they can't walk at 104 degree fever. They have big, huge growths in their body. What the heck is that? And it's painful. Crippled. Blind. And don't miss it. We know what pain's like today. But I'm going to tell you, what's going on here outside of Peter's house that night is different than what we know today. They didn't have antibiotics. They did not have Tylenol and ibuprofen and... Uh, what do you want right now? Any Percocet? Or morphine pumps. They are, the sick, really uncomfortable. And many in great pain. Jesus says, hey, let's get some more candles lit in here. And I want you to just bring one family in at a time, okay? That's how we'll work this. The, the reason I say that is because the text says... And he laid hands, his hands, on every one of them and healed them. Now, we know from the larger bird's eye view of Jesus' ministry, he didn't heal everybody all the time. This night, everyone who came, he did heal. And this idea of laying on of hands, this is a strange thing about it. It's not known of in the Old Testament. And not only that, it's not known of in cultural Judaism of the first century. 
so. And I think, don't make the mistake of thinking, well, he had to lay his hands on them because that's where the power came out, even though that could happen. Later, Jesus would say, who touched me? I felt power go out. Because we see where Jesus heals people, he doesn't touch them at all. Sometimes they're not even a few miles in his, that cl- within a few miles of him. Go home. Oh, don't make that mistake. But instead, I think what's happening is here's the king and the kingdom at Peter's house that night, and he wants to touch them. He wants to show them the tender touch of the king. Just think about that. You walk in there with some disgusting skin problem. And this Jesus preacher from Nazareth says, come here. And he just touches your skin. And he says, be healed. And you and your loved ones, you start to walk out and by the time you get somewhere in light, you realize it's gone. You're in great pain with a softball-sized cancer in your belly. You don't know what's going on. He says, come here. And he touches your skin with his hands. He says, be healed. You walk out. And it shrinks and shrinks. And it's gone. And you're not in pain anymore. You're carried in by your family on a stretcher because your legs have not worked for years. He touches you and he says, stand up. For some reason, you actually obey it. And you stand up and you walk. Now, this kingdom authority is what is happening in Peter's house that night. And what we're supposed to get, he laid his hands, is that this kingdom authority is not some impersonal power. It's an extraordinary power that is lovingly applied and delivered by the caring, very human hands of Jesus of Nazareth. And since many of these people's mental and physical ailments were caused by evil spirits, Luke adds in verse 41, And the demons also came out of many, crying, You're the Son of God! And He rebuked them. And He would not allow them to speak. Because they knew that He was the Christ. The spirit world knows who this guy is. This message becomes clear. And why doesn't Jesus let them go on and proclaim the truth that He's the Christ? Well, He doesn't want their endorsement, for one. But, but if we just go, stick with the text, the text tells us the reason He doesn't want them to continue speaking. Why doesn't He allow them? Answer, because, you see that word? Because they knew He was the Christ. Now, This dynamic that goes on, even with humans, not just demons, in Jesus' ministry, New Testament scholars call the messianic secret. Which means essentially that during Jesus' earthly ministry, 
heading toward the cross. He was very cautious and very careful to reveal his identity slowly and in very select company when it was appropriate. Probably, here's the biggest reason. To just say, I'm it, I'm the king, I am, yes, let's get really clear. I know your theology is kind of messed up. I am the Messiah. Yes, indeed. Is that it would have totally not communicated the truth, even though it was true. Because they had totally different ideas about what that would mean right now if that were true. Okay, what do I mean? Let's just, here's a dumb illustration. Say that you, you got someone who doesn't know me or our culture or names in our culture, nothing. And then, you know, someone tells this person, if someone ever walks up to you and says, Hi, I am Joe LeMay, run. Because what those words, Hi, I am Joe LeMay, means, he's going to pull out a gun within 10 seconds and kill you. Okay, that person believes that. That's what those words mean. And I don't know that person thinks that. I, don't, I didn't know some person like Marcello told them that. And so I say they come to church and I say, Hi, I'm Joe LeMay. And they flee from me. I'm thinking, what's going on? Well, I'm going to tell you something. My intended meaning of Hi, I'm Joe LeMay was totally different. It did not communicate to them what I actually meant. They attributed a meaning totally different. Does that make sense? Okay, simple. I'm the Messiah. I'm here. Let's get after it. Well, the problem with that is what Jesus means by I'm the King who has come the first time. That's what He means. That would have not been communicated to their minds. They would say something, and this did happen. Get a crown. Put it on His head. Let's get our swords, let's go to Jerusalem, and let's wipe out the Roman legion there, and then turn about face and go to Rome. Something like that. That's what it would have meant for them. So you have this messianic secret. you get got this confusion with language and meaning going on. The Messiah, the first time, has come to lay down His life as the suffering servant prophesied by Isaiah 53. By the way, a text that is absent from the theologies of first century Judaism concerning the Messiah. It would not have communicated to them. So, I know who you are. You're the Son of God. Shut up. Come out of them. And then we read in verses 42 to 44. And when it was day, he departed and he went into a desolate place and the people sought him and they came to him and they would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well because I was sent for this purpose. And he was preaching in the synagogues, plural, of all the towns of Judea, meaning Judea and Galilee here. I mean, you would do that too, right? It's amazing. This is miraculous. Look at, we're well. Please don't leave. This is his message 
and his action bringing the kingdom. So, what is the kingdom of God that we are to preach today? It is first the rule. It's the reign of God that is here. Very present. Not physical or spatial or boundaried like that. Like you got to get over here in this church building or in Mecca or in Jerusalem or in Rome. It is the kingdom of God that is everywhere. The authority of God is right there too. Enter His saving rule. And that's what the kingdom of God at its core means. It's His saving authority and rule. That's why two people in one house, sitting on one person on the couch right there and the other person here, one of them is in the kingdom and the other person is outside of the kingdom. The rule and the saving reign of Christ. And thirdly, the kingdom of God coming to earth has been fulfilled 2,000 years ago. And remains partially. It's present and it's present today, but it will be consummated at his second coming. And no matter who you are, you want, you want to be in the present kingdom now in order to be assured that you'll be in the future coming of the kingdom of God forever then. And so what we have seen in our text this morning is that this beginning of Jesus' ministry, what we're witnessing is the beginning of the King, Jesus, ushering in the kingdom of God. And that same kingdom of God manifested at Peter's house that night is very relevant today. The kingdom of God is here. Some are oblivious to it, and others have entered it. And the message is to teach about the king and what the king did, according to Isaiah 53. He died suffering the wrath of God for sinners. And the message therefore says, this one who was resurrected offers you absolute forgiveness and eternal life. And the command is, strive to enter the kingdom. How? Well, Jesus said it this way one day. Unless you become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom. In other words, become like that little five-year-old girl with daddy who cares so much and trust like the girl trusts daddy. Unless a person becomes like that in their brokenness and in their dependence to God, the King saving in Christ, and they hear the promises of daddy, you'll never enter the kingdom. And you put that together with what Jesus says. Unless a person is born again, they can never see nor enter the kingdom 
of God. It means that the new birth, the power of the kingdom in new birth is exactly that. The authority of the king who comes and raises you from the dead in the hearing of the gospel. If you're not in the kingdom, come. If you're in the kingdom, it means the life of the King dwells in us. And we're called daily to pursue the rule, the direction, the authority over us and His power of sanctification and ministering to others through us on a daily basis. Let's pray. So Lord Jesus, together, it, it is our prayer that because of You and with You we can say, our Holy Father in Heaven, hallow Your name in our lives, in our families, in our church. We say to you, let your kingdom rule and authority come. Now, right now, presently on earth, in our life, in our struggles, in our temptations, in our sin, in our marriages, in our witnessing, in our fathering or mothering, let your kingdom come now on earth as it is in heaven to the glory of your name. 